So let's talk then on the street level. What does it look like to effectively have conversations with unbelievers? And we're going to use 2 Corinthians 10 as a model. And the Bible uses the picture of pulling down strongholds. 2 Corinthians 10. What happens is as a person suppresses the truth about God in their lives, they begin to build a wall of resistance. Uh, it might be bad experiences they had with religious people. And I think of that as like a, a block that they place. And then, you know, doubts about the Bible, another block. And I don't want God to tell me what to do sexually and another block. And, and throughout their lives, people are building up this block, of, this block wall of resistance against God. And all we're seeking to do when we have a conversation with them is to pull those blocks down one by one through asking questions, through causing them to doubt their unbelief, so that the light of the gospel can get through. And that's where I have to be patient. God may only call me to, to ask one question that they'll think about six months later from now, but that's one more block taken down in their exposure to the gospel. Or if you have the opportunity to have an, a lengthy conversation or an ongoing relationships uh, with people, to knock that wall entirely down where someone says, I don't even know what I believe anymore. And you know, their, their whole wall of unbelief is, is gone. And the Bible uses this picture of pulling down strongholds. 2 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 3, Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, that is, we are physical beings, we are not waging war according to the flesh. We're not fighting a jihad. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So if we use this metaphor, as Paul says, that we have weapons. What are our weapons? The word of God, the truth of the gospel. They are powerful to destroy unbelief. And, and in, in this book, Nabil Qureshi shares his testimony as a devout Muslim, well-schooled in in Islam growing up and in college encountering his Christian roommate who over the course of more than a year and a half, I think almost two years, just patiently engaging him, pulling down these blocks one at a time to the point that he finally comes to know Christ and was such an amazing uh, testimony in his short life. So what we're trying to do is use metaphors, pulling the rug out from underneath their feet. You know, if you're going to have to contend with someone. If you can take away their, their foundation on which they stand, pull that rug out, they can't fight. Or here's another one, disarming unbelievers. I have a friend who does judo, and he says judo is, um, is a grappling art where you're using the opponent's motion against them. So if they come at you, rather than trying to block or fight back, you actually pull them toward you to throw them off balance. So that's why in conversation when I was doing that with Ryan, I'm asking questions. I'm adjusting to his answers, looking for some way then to begin to question his beliefs and challenge him. I'm going to let him set the stage or set the tone or the topics for our discussion before I ever try to confront certain things. Because I know as a Christian, if they're rejecting Christ, then there are contradictions in their belief system. So this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to challenge, this is the first blank, challenge the authority of the non-Christian's belief system. I'm trying to get at the root of what they trust in. 
what they're building their whole belief system in. Is it in their religion, which they blindly follow? Is it in something that some teacher told them? Is it in their parents? Well, I grew up in this home and I believe it and I'm not going to change. Is it their ethnic identity? Uh, growing up in an Irish and Italian Catholic family, knowing other Polish Catholics, you know, you almost tie your ethnic identity to your religion. I have a friend that's uh, a Russian and he's in St. Petersburg, Russia. And he's been there, he's been a missionary church planner for almost, well, more than 15 years. And he has just a small group of Christians because he said to become a Christian in Russia is to deny your Russianness. He said people are very proud of being Russian there. And to deny that is a huge step. He said very few people are willing to take that step. Even if they want to believe, they can't, they think they have to turn their back on their very ethnic nature. So to destroy a stronghold is to reveal the weakness of the authority in which the unbeliever trusts. I'm trying to show them, for example, in that uh, dialogue with Ryan, that science, science can't establish morality for us. It can tell us what is in the world, what the world is, but it can't tell us what we ought to do. It can show us how to build a nuclear weapon. It can't tell us whether it's right to do it or not, uh, to drop it. Uh, it can help us to um, do something like a, you know, a kidney transplant, but it doesn't give us the ethics of what is right and what is wrong in relationship to that. I'm actually giving a, a talk in December downtown at the, the Trust Performing Arts Center on the ethics, on medical ethics related to organ transplantation. In some parts of the world, you can sell your kidneys, and there's a big ethical problem with that because that exploits the poor. You know, if you can make $10,000 in some places, three years salary, does that force the poor into giving up their kidneys? Or in some countries like uh, China, where they take prisoners uh, and they will kill them for their organs. So all kinds of ethical issues. Well, science can tell us how to do those kind of things, but science cannot tell us alone what's right and wrong about those kind of things. And so I want to show that if that is your authority, it cannot answer the most important questions of life. And so what we want to do is we want to ask questions that force the person to reveal the foundation of their beliefs. So I'm just going to ask questions as I'm listening to them talk to say, well, well, you know, tell me more about that. And where do you get that from? And so there's several questions that I've developed over the years through intense research and development. Uh, these are these are really like um, highly intellectual. Uh, be careful as you use them because they're really powerful. It's kind of like a handgun. It, you know, how you use it can matter. So, you know, make sure you, if you use these questions, that you give proper credit to the source. Now, th these are simple little questions that anyone can ask. And my goal is, at the end of this hour, that you will say, I can do that. I can talk to a friend or even a stranger and ask those types of questions. So here they are. Get ready. Make sure there's enough ink in your pen. What do you mean by that? I know. <laughs> like blows your mind like well I think all Christians are just detrimental to society our temptation is to say no they're not yes they are no they're not yes they are and you see you get nowhere with that so if they say something like that say well what do you mean by that how, how are Christians detrimental a few years ago one of the well-known atheists Christopher Hitchens who since has died of cancer wrote a book called um, something like how Christianity or how religion poisons everything and his argument was that Christianity and religion are dangerous to society. It poisons everything. 
Oh, and, and he, Christopher Hitchens, very interesting, engaging atheist. If you're going to read someone for entertainment, uh, he'd be a good one to read. But the argument holds no water when you critique it. So I want to ask someone, well, what do you mean by that? And we have to be very careful not to take offense. Too many times we as Christians were too sensitive, like, oh, I think Christianity is stupid. Oh, you're persecuting me. No, we should not be that sensitive. We should expect that the world is going to be hostile to us. The Bible tells us, think about the hostility Jesus endured in Hebrews 12. Consider him who endured such hostility on our behalf. Um, and the truth is, this is why we can't leave this to just pastors or other people like that who hold titles. It's got to be every Christian because you can engage people that Pastor Keith cannot. You have friendships and neighbors and coworkers that, that he cannot. And this is because this is so relational, it's really important that we think about the people in our world and, and who can I share this with. Uh, for the first few years that we lived here, we moved here a little over four years ago, the most active apologists I know were Ryan when he was in high school and my wife who worked at the hospital downtown. I, I work on a Christian college campus. You know how hard it is for me to engage unbelievers? Now, I think that other professors and students there might be unsafe sometimes, but no, just kidding. Um, for me, I've got to go looking. I've got to go downtown. I go downtown a lot to Lancaster and go to coffee shops and try to talk with people. And I get together on a regular basis with uh, my atheist friend. But uh, when we moved here, Ryan had grown up in Christian school all his life, and we decided to put him into public school. And so he went to CV. And in the first month he came home, he said, Dad, I've either got to live my faith and, and live it out loud, or I'm going to be like a lot of these other people I've met who say they're Christians, but no difference in their lives. Same with my wife. And so they were having almost daily interactions with unbelievers, sometimes hostile, sometimes antagonistic. And yet God gave them both very fruitful ministries in that setting. Ryan even says sometimes, I miss being around unsaved people because he's a student at LBC. Uh, now, if, you, if you're with unsaved people all the time, you, you might be like, Put me in a Christian environment. I'm so tired of the hostility. But we've got to be willing to not respond defensively or sensitively, but boldly to say things like, what do you mean by that? Or here's another one. Why do you believe that? Well, I think all, all, all religions are just the same. Why do you believe that? And here's a key I hope you remember. Whenever you don't know what to say to something an unbeliever says, ask questions. Whenever you don't know what to say, ask questions. Be inquisitive. We call this a holy curiosity. You know, why do you, why do you believe that all religions are the same? Here's another one. How do you know that? Well, don't you know that, you know, religion is uh, just something that was created in 2000 B.C. by a group of people that got together on the plains of Saudi Arabia? Like, you know, obviously none of that is true. Uh, how do you know that? Well, everyone knows that, you know. I know that, you know that, we all know that, to quote our president. Um, how do you know that? It's, we should challenge people. In other words, don't let things like that stand. Challenge them. How do you know that to be true? And many times you find people are bluffing. What do you base that on? Some of the sharp ones in the room are saying, these all sound alike. They really are all essentially variations on the same question. But you'll notice in conversation, this keeps the conversation going. You want that person to talk as much as you, as, as you can get them to talk, share their beliefs. 
explore in what ways they're rejecting the truth of Christianity because then it opens up, oh, okay, I can address this when they're done talking. How have you come to that conclusion? Well, I just think that we are all, you know, part of the divine and we, we each have a spark of divinity in us and we just need to fan into flame that spark of divinity. Oh, that's a very interesting thought. I've never heard anybody say that before. How, how did you come to that conclusion? Where did you get that idea? I know, now it's like, can you get through the list because it's all the same question. But you can see you don't have to keep asking the same thing over and over. You can use a variation. Who said that? I love this one. Don't you know studies have shown? Oh, really? Studies have shown. What studies would those be? You know, can you send me a link to that? Oh, this is from Uncle Bob's blog. Okay, well, I'm not sure that that study is really necessarily a good one. And even when someone does send you, I, I had this disagreement with my, my skeptic friend um, where he tried to argue that this is how twisted unbelief is. He tried to argue that pedophilia did not, or, or child pornography did not increase actual incidence of pedophilia. Now, obviously, I think that's insane. But he sent me several articles from Psychology Today and various others. Well, I just don't accept that just because these psychological uh, experts say this. I push back on some various issues with that and uh, sent to my own studies because there's plenty of links which show that is directly correlative. Uh, is that source reliable? Again, a lot of people get their views of religion, the world, from internet. When obviously there's good things on the internet, but as you know, there's a lot of uh, stuff that can't be substantiated. Can you give me an example of that? For example, someone says there's a contradiction. There, don't you know all the contradictions in the Bible? Can you give me an example of one? I've actually had people say, I don't know, I'm not a Bible scholar. Okay, but you, you said that there are contradictions. You should be able to at least name one. So again, what we're doing is we're pushing back on this unbelief doing it gently, respectfully, lovingly, but we're not, we're not to be rolled over because we're Christians. Uh, think about the way Jesus engaged people like Nicodemus and the woman at the well and others where he challenged them on their unbelief. So basically what we want to do is we want to question the objection to the Christian faith. When someone objects, question that, challenge that. Again, you may not have all the answers, but you are showing that as a Christian, I don't accept this conventional wisdom that you're trying to share with me because I know there's something wrong with it if it's not belief in Christ. I may not know exactly, but I will come back with a better answer. And folks, there's so many good resources um, available today at the back of your handout. Um, I give you a lot of books, but I also give some really good websites on the very last page. And some of those uh, ministries... Uh, C-A-R-M, CARM, Stand to Reason. They have hundreds and hundreds of articles on every imaginable topic you can think of. So take advantage of those. Get familiar with those. Learn some of those answers so when they come up, you can make those corrections. So here's some authorities unbelievers typically trust. Some people say, I trust science. What do they mean by that? And by the way, as Christians, we are not against science. Science is a wonderful gift from God. It's a tool by which we know our world. But unbelievers make it an authority. 
The problem, however, there's several problems with science. Everything scientific has to be interpreted. We talked about that last night. If I find something in nature, I've got to interpret it. Um, scientists disagree with one another all the time. Science is constantly overchanging its previous announcements, right? Remember when eating oatmeal was going to save your health? And you lived to 150 just by eating oatmeal? I think Quaker Oats probably sponsored that, uh, that study. And, and truthfully, sometimes uh, science is colored or affected by the interest of who's paying. There's some great um, vintage advertisements online from the 1960s and 70s. Things like make sure your kids get their daily dose of sugar and recommending like high sugar diets for children. Where did that come from? It came from scientific studies funded by the, by the sugar industry. If you have Netflix, go on sometime and uh, I think the, uh, the, the uh, documentary is in, called something like Sugar Coated or Sugar Ink. It's fascinating who funded the studies about the effect that sugar has on people. Scientists! And that's the way science works. Science has to be funded. So science is a good thing. We're thankful for that. It's a gift from God. But it can never function as an authority. And here's what people who are given to, uh, actually C.S. Lewis calls this scientism. It's a belief in science that makes it almost a religion. They want to say only what can be observed is fact. And religion is faith, not knowledge. That's what people believe. And, and truthfully, real science doesn't say that. The people who put all their faith in science wants to, want to claim this, that the only thing that we can truly know is what can be observed scientifically. Except there's lots of things that we truly know that cannot be observed scientifically, things like the laws of logic, things like um, metaphysical truths like justice and compassion. My skeptic friend actually tried to tell me that we can open up people's brains and we can see empathy. I said, what do you mean we can see empathy? We can see empathy in the brain as we, you know, in, a, in a study. I said, you mean we can see electrical synapses in the brain firing and chemical reactions? No, we can see empathy. I said, I don't think, you, I don't think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> we can't see empathy. We can assign a value to a, re, a physical reaction, but we're not seeing empathy. That's a, that's a virtue, and, and there's nothing physical. I can't look under a rock and say, oh, look at that empathy. I should put that in my morning smoothie. No, that's, that's not the way science works. And so people who put all their faith in science uh, oftentimes are very uncritical of the assumptions. A few years ago in Britain, there was a uh, bus advertising campaign that came out. Here's one of the ads. There's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. What's the problematic word in that? Probably, right? But there's another problematic word, enjoy. Is life just about enjoyment? I mean, isn't there sorrow and sadness and tragedy and difficulty? If all I can do is enjoy my life, then it gives me no clue of how to react when I lose someone or when there's an injustice or a wrong done. Here's a quote, surprisingly, by Catherine Hepburn. I'm an atheist and that's it. I believe there's nothing we can know except that we should be kind to each other and do what we can for other people. So take the questions I just asked. What kind of questions would you want to ask someone who would say something like this? Think critically. Think about what they're assuming. 
That's right. If there is no God, shouldn't we each just be concerned about ourselves or maybe our families? Why should I care about someone else? If I'm kind to someone else, I'm taking resources from myself. And isn't natural selection about looking out for your own genetic pool, your own gene pool? Anything else you see there you'd want to question? Yeah, who decides, this is really important, who decides the definition of kindness? The abortion doctor thinks he's doing a kindness, right? No value, kindness, compassion, mercy, has, has an obviously universal definition. It is directly tied to your worldview. So in the evolutionary worldview, the atheistic worldview, the evolution or the abortionist is being kind, the, the doctor who puts an end to life of an older person is doing kindness. But so many other people would say, no, that's not kindness, that's cruelty, or that's murder, or that's, that's nothing like what we want. And yet there's assumption that we all know what kindness is. Very good. Here's another one. I believe there's nothing we can know except that we should be kind. Why do you believe that there's nothing we know? Or why do you believe that the only thing that we can know is that we ought to be kind? Where do you get that from? Yeah, you're, you're essentially making it up. I want this to be the only ethic. Okay, well, what do you base that on? We're not just going to accept it because you're Catherine Hepburn and you think this is a nice thing to do and you can say it in a way that we remember in the classic movies. Is, is this all that we can know about life? It's like someone who says there's no absolute truth except the truth that there's no absolute truth. That's a direct contradiction. Here's one more part of it. You can be good without God. Again, who, who defines good? And if there is no God, what you often find with skeptics and atheists, they say there's no God, but we ought to be kind to one another. Why? Aggression and cruelty will get you really far. Look at what happens in the natural world on the African savanna. The lions sit around and say, man, we're really hungry, but we've got to be really nice to people. Let's, let's try eating these dandelions again. No, cruelty and aggression works. And if we're nothing more than those animals, then why not? do that for us. It, it works, doesn't it? You can get a lot through cruelty and aggression. In fact, I'm hoping that most people want to be kind and gentle so that when I'm cruel and, ag and aggressive, I can easily exploit you. And yet they have no answers for these things. Other people, letter B, put their faith and rely on reason, which says only what the mind and society deem to be reasonable is true. Some people say, let's just be rational. Okay, let's be rational. By whose definition of rational? So it, should we be rational? Yes, we should, but we have to be careful because rationality is not an authority. Again, it's a tool. Reason is a tool. I mean, to think critically, but we're always going to disagree on the rational thing to do. Husband and wife get in a car, they're going somewhere where they've never been before. What is the discussion that usually breaks out? Should we turn on a map? No, I, need, no I, I know how we need to get there. And it could be, it could be either husband or wife that, that feels that way. And so you have a different view of what is rational. Shouldn't we go the back road? No, let's take the highway. Well, it's 5 o'clock. It's rush hour. Yeah, but the back way gets, you know. And, and what you're doing is debating what is rational. Because while it is a tool, it's never an authority. I love this one. Only what intellectuals and academic institutions hold can be true. Well, don't you know, at Harvard, they have concluded, or at Oxford, 
I told you last night the story of the philosophy students at Villanova. Uh, a well-known philosopher who's a, actually a Christian philosopher says in a, in a book, after 3,000 years of philosophy, there's still no agreement on a single point of philosophy by any philosophers. So when people say, I trust in philosophy, I, I have to restrain myself from laughing. Philosophers themselves say we don't have the answer, so why would you put your faith in that? Now, I, I believe academic institutions can be good. Ignorance is not a good thing. But we should not for a moment be led astray that because a university professor says something that it's necessarily true. There's a lot of idiotic, foolish, intelligent people in the world. And then lastly, some people hold to their religion. And they would say, sincerity in your belief is all that God, however you conceive him to be, requires. All that really matters is that you're sincere. Okay, but different religions sincerely believe different things. So is truth relative? If so, then we have no basis to call anything wrong, no base to condemn injustice or evil. And religions hold different beliefs about various things. And besides, you can sincerely believe the plane will bring you safely to your destiny, but that doesn't mean it's going to. You can sincerely believe that the chair is going to hold you, but when it collapses, it, you know, you're shown that your belief is not true. You can sincerely believe your alarm clock will go off, and when you're an hour late, your sincerity is not going to count for your boss. So here's what we want to do. We want to challenge arguments against the Christian worldview. And, and that's what we mean by demolishing strongholds. This is where we want to gently and respectfully push back and say, I, I think you're wrong, and here's why. Or, or let me ask a question that shows where you're wrong. First of all, I want to test the unbeliever's views by the same criteria he seeks to apply to Christianity. What does that mean? Someone says, prove God exists to me. Okay, let me try to do that. Let me ask you, how do you prove your own beliefs systems? In other words, whatever they're trying to make you do as a Christian, have them see if their own belief system can fulfill that demand. And the truth is, as we'll see in just a moment, the Christian worldview can handle any objection, but most worldviews fail when you apply the same criteria to them. We'll see that tonight when we talk about the reliability of the Bible. People say, how, do, how can we trust the Bible? But when you hold up, especially the New Testament, because the Old Testament's not really a question, but you hold up the New Testament, how it was written compared to any other ancient writing, it is a hundred times more reliable. And every critic of the Bible admits that when they see those, those comparisons. Secondly, I want to show how the Christian faith can answer any legitimate challenge leveled against it. And let me encourage you that while you may not know the answer to certain things, we live in a day where there's so many good resources. There's, there is no challenge to the Christian faith from science, from history, from archaeology, from philosophy, for which there are not very good answers. And the key as a Christian is learning to figure out where can I go, what website, what book, because there are good answers. And that's why when you encounter an objection and you don't know what to say, it's okay to say, you know, I don't know. That's a really good question. Let me, let me try to get an answer and get back to you. That's perfectly okay to say because you can't possibly know everything ahead of time. So on the back of the sheet then, here's what we want to do as we are talking with people and asking questions. We want to push 
the buttons that every belief system has. In other words, every belief system has weaknesses or places that we can ask questions that show the weakness of their system. First of all, epistemology. How do you know what you know? So epistemology is a big word. It simply means how do you know what you know? So when you go out after this to, to find your car in the parking lot, do you hold up your remote you know, unlocker and say, oh, I wonder which one is mine? No, you, you know things by memory, right? Those who are really committed to science and evolution will say, no, the only way you can know th things is through scientific testing. But that's not how we really live, is it? You know, if, if, there's a, if there's a garlic muffin over there and you know you don't like garlic, do you have to say, well, I really need to test this because in the past I didn't like garlic, but maybe I'll like it this time? No, you, you know, I don't like garlic. Uh, I personally will eat just about anything except for liver. I grew up, and when things were really bad, now you might love liver, my apologies. When things were really bad in our, our home financially, we had liver. So to this day, it like brings back traumatic childhood memories, and I just don't like the taste. I don't need to study that scientifically. Why? Because I know things through memory, through personal taste. We know certain things through intuition, don't we? If you have little children and they come into the room with a certain look on their face, it's like intuitively you know. Now, that's not a scientific observation. Or if you hear, you know, your two-year-old and playing in the other room suddenly gets really quiet, you know, intuitively. So many people want to limit knowledge to what can be proven scientifically, but in reality, we know things many different ways. So here's some of the questions or some of the problems with trusting our own senses. If you trust your senses, they can deceive you. All right? Have you ever been wrong? Have you ever put salt in your coffee instead of sugar? Because your senses said, oh, white powder, white grainy thing, I'll put that in my coffee. Or maybe you thought I can pull out and clear this truck in time, and you didn't. Uh, or I think that I'm shaving just right, and then you nick yourself. And, you know, in other words, our senses deceive us all the time. And if that's what you're trusting for your senses to always be right, you will be wrong more often than you think. If you trust your reason, you can be fooled. You know, people deceive you, they trick you, they manipulate you. For my 50th uh, birthday last year, we had a Sunday school activity, and uh, we're in the middle of this uh, picnic, and suddenly this cake comes out, and everyone's singing. Like, my wife totally got me. I was not expecting that at all. Uh, I thought I was smart enough to see it coming, but I was not. If you trust some religious authority, it can change or be wrong. So someone will say to you, well, I'm just this. I'm a Catholic, or I'm an Episcopalian, or I'm a Baptist, or whatever. Uh, and the key is, you know, is your faith in Christ or your own good works. Ask them, what if the priest is wrong? What if your pastor is wrong? If your whole trust is in that, and they're wrong, God's going to hold you accountable for what you believe. The other question we can ask is ethical questions. How do you determine right and wrong? Or what is right and wrong and what makes them so? So sometimes I'll push people on, well, how do you know that? How do you know that? How do you know that? Other times I'll do like I did with Ryan in the first dialogue and go to the question of right and wrong. How do you know what's right and wrong according to your belief system? And here's what they'll often do. They'll reject Christianity, but they'll borrow ideas from Christianity. 
Oh, I think we should be compassionate to one another and kind. Yeah, but in your worldview, you just said that each of us is just the product of our genes and we just do what we're programmed to do. So if that's the case, why, why should we be good? I mean, shouldn't you just be whatever you are, whatever your genes programmed to be? What they're doing is they're borrowing ideas from the Christian faith, trying to sneak that in the back door of their belief system. That's where we have to say, wait, wait a second. That makes sense in my worldview. Because right and wrong is given to us from God, clearly revealed in his scripture. But I don't understand how that fits your worldview. And that's where you can sometimes knock down a whole portion of their wall where they suddenly come to realize you're right. If, if all I am is the, is the sum total of my genes, then I can't really expect someone to, to do the things that I think are right. And sometimes a revelation for that like that can floor a person and really make them consider the gospel. Here's a great Calvin and Hobbes cartoon. Calvin and Hobbes, very theological, just like the peanuts. Calvin says to Hobbes, I don't believe in ethics anymore. As far as I'm concerned, the ends justify the means. Get what you can while the getting's good. That's what I say. Might makes right. The winners write the history books. It's a dog-eat-dog world, so I'll do whatever I have to. And let others argue about whether it's right or not. So he's giving his worldview. Hobbes pushes him in the mud, and he says, why'd you do that? Hobbes says, you were in my way, now you're not. The ends justify the means. Calvin says, I didn't mean for everyone you don't, just me. And that's again where as I'm listening to someone talk about what they believe, what guides their sense of right and wrong, I then want to apply that consistently to how we really live. Because many people have a worldview that they say, this is what I think, this is what I believe. But when you actually live it, they don't actually live that out that way. People are always inconsistent. It's one of the reasons why as a Christian, I've got to be very careful to be as consistent as possible. I say Jesus is my Lord. I say that I'm here to, to glorify God with my life. I say that everything I own is God's. Then I need to live consistently with that through you know, living in obedience to God, giving of my time, giving of my resources, showing compassion to other people, you know? not uh, cursing at someone who pulls out in front of me, because if I believe in you know, the goodness of God and love for others, I'm, I'm not going to do that. So here's another thing we can do when it comes to evil. Someone says this. We'll talk about this tomorrow morning in church. How can there be a God when there's so much evil in the world? It's a good question. So I want to follow that up with them. So this is what I would say to the person. So when you say that there's evil in the world, you also mean that there's good that stands in contrast to that? Well, yeah, okay. So there's, there's evil acts, there's good acts, right? Okay. So if you're saying that there's evil and good, there must be some kind of moral law which distinguishes those two, right? Otherwise, we would each decide for ourselves and I could call something good, you could call something bad, but we each expect that there's some kind of a universal moral law which tells us our obligations to do good and not evil. But if there's a moral law, there must be a moral law giver. There must be someone who's given us this law. Otherwise, none of us would really need to pay attention to it, and it would be, we wouldn't really know what it was, kind of like the law of gravity. The law of gravity shows no pity to you. You know, if you jump off a tall building, the law of gravity says, oh, I'm so sorry about what's going to happen. You know, I wish I could do something about it. No, you just, the law of gravity is impersonal. But when it comes to right and wrong, there has to be an intelligence behind it for it to matter. So if you argue that there's no God because of evil, you can't even talk about evil unless there is a God. 
evil assumes a moral lawgiver. So here you started with someone who said, um, I can't believe in God because of evil in the world. You help them to see you can't even talk about evil unless there is a God. Think about this. Someone who believes in an evolutionary worldview. This is really important. Someone who believes in an evolutionary worldview, the world is exactly the way it's supposed to be. You ever think about that? It's not broken. It's the way it's supposed to be. The strong genetic, you know, people who have strong genes, they survive. The weak fail. When someone dies, it's just the nature of life in this world. And really, we should not be upset about it. We don't, we don't weep over the, you know, tens of thousands of zebras killed on the African savanna every year because that's the way nature is supposed to be. But the problem is intuitively we, we grieve over loss, don't we? We get enraged over injustice. That doesn't make sense if the world's the way it's supposed to be. So you'll have people claim the evolutionary worldview, and yet they will say something's not right with the world. I want to say, you're exactly right. Something's not right with the world. That's the whole Christian worldview. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. But that doesn't make sense in your worldview. And by showing people that, they begin to say, you're right. Why, do I, why am I bothered by injustice? If, if, if genes rule the world, then that's just the way it's going to be. But they're fighting against their very experience as people. So last one here. Another place you can go when you ask questions is ask them, how do we know the difference between right and wrong? And in the center circle, people will often say, well, we each decide for ourselves. It's personal. Ah, it's personal. Okay. So we each decide for ourselves. Yes. Um, a couple of years ago, a lot of my conversations happened in coffee shops. They just seem to be natural um, ways to start conversations with strangers. Uh, this guy came and sat down next to me, and uh, he was reading a book by Deepak Chopra. Anybody know who Deepak Chopra is? He's the, he's the Indian New Age guru. He's on TV all the time. All his books are bestsellers. It's basically Hinduism repackaged for American audiences. You have the divine within you. You need to fan the flame, become all you can be. So he's sitting down next to me, and whenever I'm in a public place and someone's reading a book, that's always an in for me. Oh, what are you reading? Oh, what is it saying? Tell me about that. So I asked him about the book. He said, well... This is a book about how we each need to find our own self-actualization. We each need to pursue for ourselves coming all that, becoming all that we can be. So that's very interesting. So how does that affect um, like right and wrong? He said, well, we each decide for ourselves. I said, okay. But what happens if what I believe is right conflicts with what you believe is right? So let's say I'm bigger and stronger than you, and I think what's right for me is aggression, and so I take your wallet. He kind of sensed the trap. He said, uh, he said, well, if you needed what I had more than I did, I'd give it to you. I said, you are a very generous person, far more generous than I would be. I said, but let's take it further. Let's say while we're talking here, someone goes to your house and they clean you out, empty your bank accounts. Uh, well, again, I think if they needed it more than I would, you know, then I would be okay. I said, so you wouldn't call the police? Oh, no, I'd call the police. I'd say, why? Why would you interfere with that person? That might be their path to self-actualization. He said, you're a Christian, aren't you? <laughs> I said, I am. And he said, I don't like to talk to Christians about these things because they don't understand. I said, okay, I'll leave you be. And I, I did. I went back to doing what I was doing. He went back to reading his book. Ten minutes later, he slams his book shut. He says, you know that thing that you said about? And, and we got right back into the conversation for another 10 or 15 minutes. 
So to, to push back on these issues of right and wrong, but then also to respect that person. If they say, I don't want to talk about it. Remember, we're just playing a part in their salvation. So if they say, I don't want to talk about it, let it go. Because if God's working in their heart, they're not going to be able to let it go. They're going to want to come back and talk about it. So I often challenge people. So what happens if my right and wrong conflicts with yours? They'll often fall back. Well, society tells us right and wrong. Oh, society. Okay. And for, for people over 40, you know, who remember or know more details about World War II, I'll say, so Germany in the 1930s and that society where German nationalism and persecution of Jews and Poles and Czechs, since society accepted that, that was okay, right? Well, well, no, that was obviously wrong. But, but you just said society determines right and wrong. They'll fall back one more level. Well, common sense tells us that was a bad society. Oh, common sense. Okay. Don't you know that people have different views of common sense all around the world? There's no universal sense of common sense here. And what I'll often say to them is, I think what you're looking for is something transcendent, something that stands outside of us, which tells us all what is right and wrong. And now we're talking about God. Because the truth is you cannot have morality if there's not something outside of us which gives us our morality. Otherwise, we go through this constant conflict of decide for yourself, but society frowns on certain things. Some societies are corrupt, so common sense. You can never find a universal sense of right and wrong unless there's something outside of us. So Ryan's going to come up now. We're going to do another dialogue. And this time we're going to play, are we co-workers? Okay, so we know each other, so we're not strangers. And he's going to play a different kind of unbeliever. Feels weird sitting lower than, than you. Yeah. So, uh, Bill, what's going on these days? Oh, you know, just the usual. Just uh, working at this place where we work. Yeah, the <laughs> shoe factory. Shoe factory. So how, how are things with your family? Everything okay? Um, yeah, I mean... Things, things are pretty good, but, you know, just got to hope that something will change. I know my wife's in the hospital right now, as you know. Yeah, I'm so uh, sorry to hear. Any, any progress or any change on her condition? No. Uh, doctors have, have said a few things, but I don't, I don't really understand the, the medical things, so we're just trying to get through, through this tough time. Wow. Well, you know, I'm gonna, I've been praying for you. I'm going to keep praying for you. You know, how are you coping with this? How are you getting through this time? Well, I think I, think I just, I'm just kind of hoping that something will change, but, you know, I'm just accepting it. You know, there's, there's, you know, we all, we all have to die sometimes, so I guess, you know, if this is her time. Oh, man, I, I can't imagine what you're going through. Uh, my heart, my heart goes out to you. Um, do, do you ever think about death and what happens after that? I mean, I'm sure you're wrestling with that right now. Yeah, but... <clears throat> I just kind of, I think we all just, you know, I think everybody has their, their own beliefs about death. I think mine would just be that, you know, I, you know, I hope that something good happens, but, you know, it's just whatever people believe. Yeah. In the situation that you're in, um, is there a part of you that says, I, I wish we could know? Yeah, I, I would like to know what, what happens after death, but I don't know if there's a way of doing that. You know, I'm a Christian, and I, I believe in Jesus Christ. He's my Savior. 
um, when Jesus was here on the earth, he talked a lot about uh, what happens in the afterlife and talked about the fact that, um, that he's the key to that because he's, we believe he's God who came down, became man, and uh, died on our behalf to suffer for our sins. Um, have you ever thought about your relationship with God? No, I think that's great for you. And I think, I think, you know, I have my own truth. I like to believe that, you know, that if I do, if I do enough good things, that maybe some, some divinity, you know, will, will honor that and I'll, I'll reach a stage of, you know, maybe enlightenment or something. I think it's just kind of whatever you believe. Yeah. So you, you believe that truth is just kind of relative or? Yeah. Okay. You know, I, I would say that, you know, your belief is, is true for you and my belief is true for me and we just kind of have to not get in each other's way. Yeah. So how does that affect us as a society? Is it just we keep that kind of thing to ourselves, or you think, is it okay to talk about that kind of thing? I mean, I think it's okay to talk about it as long as somebody doesn't claim to have the one, you know, the one truth that I think that that's, I think that that's just wrong for someone to claim that they have the truth. Yeah, interesting. Let me ask you a question. When we get paid every two weeks, um, I take it that you would expect an objective payment for your work here and not just whatever the boss wants to pay yeah. you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's because in some, in some areas of our lives, um, even if we say that truth is relative, there are some things that we expect to be objectively true. Like we expect to, to work our 40 hours here in the shoe factory and, um, and then to get paid what we've been promised. So there, there, you are expecting an objective paycheck. Is that right? Yeah. 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 So why is it that when it comes to more important things like, you know, why we're here in this world or what happens to us after death, why couldn't there be some kind of objective truth to that? I mean, I think, I just don't know if we, we have, you know, I think there could, there might be, there could be truth, but I just don't think that we could know if there was. Hmm. Why, why couldn't we know it? Well, you know, I, I just think that if it is, you know, if, it, if there is a truth, it's probably, you know, so, so above us that we could never understand mm. it. Yeah. And in a sense, I agree with you that the, the God the Bible portrays is a God who's infinite, well beyond our understanding. Um, he's divine, we're creaturely. And yet, the Bible also tells us he revealed himself. And, and think about this. If there is a God who's out there who is so much greater beyond our understanding... Um, I would think if he was that great, he could also communicate, wouldn't you think? Yeah, I guess so. But, I mean, I get what you're getting at. But just with this whole situation with, with my wife and everything like that, you know, I know you're a Christian. We've talked about it before. But I just don't understand how, you know, if God is as you say he is, that, th that this, this kind of suffering could be happening. Yeah. And, and I, I can't imagine what you're going through. And I think that you're right. It's, it's suffering, great suffering, and, and suffering with the threat of death that um, does more to shake our faith in the goodness of God than anything else. Did you know there's a whole book of the Bible um, called the Book of Job, which is all about this question of why does God allow evil and suffering? So the Bible actually addresses that issue because uh, it, it is um, it's something that we struggle with, how broken this world is. And yet, the story of Jesus is all about how God has given us hope. Do you, do you have any hope for yourself or for your wife? I, I think the only hope that I have is just, you know, that, I, that I'm a good person and I'm nice to other people. Yeah. And you are a good guy. I love working with you. 
Uh, one of the things we learn in the Bible, though, is that God is holy and demands absolute perfection. And, and so you and I would fail on that test because while you might, be a, you might be a good person, enjoyable to work with, when it comes to our standing before God, there's, there's nothing we can do because we have fallen, we have sinned. And, we, and the truth is we live in a sin-cursed world. I think one of the reasons that the world is the way it is and that your wife is suffering and, and there's great tragedies in the world is because the world is, is broken. And I, I know that you've experienced that this year with, with what she's gone through. Um, and yet God communicates in the, in the Word, in the Bible, that uh, the whole reason that he sent Jesus was to fix what was broken. Yeah. Do you know much about Jesus? Have you read any of the Bible before? I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I think he's said some good things, but... Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's interesting. Jesus actually talks about death and the afterlife quite a bit. And uh, one of the things that when he came to this earth that gave so many people hope was he... He promised them that he was the key. He was the way. It's kind of like, you know, um, if there was someone in this, in this company, the only one person knew how to actually make shoes, they would kind of be the key, and, and we could learn from them, we could follow them, but that person would be key. And when it comes to death and suffering in this world, the reason Jesus can speak to that is because he did suffer. You know he died on the cross. He did die, but we also believe he rose from the dead and came back to life. Um, and, and so we think Jesus is the, is the key to understanding death and life. Well, let me ask you this, though. As, as your wife has gone through this, um, what, are, what are some of the reactions that you've gotten from other people? I, you know, I've, I've had some people who, who have you know, offered, to, offered to bring... Uh, us meals and take care of me during this time and, and that's been really nice uh, I've had some people you know say you know say that they would pray for me and you know although I don't necessarily believe that there's any power in that I appreciate it hmm. um, but there's just been other people who have just kind of you know said well you know we, we you know our thoughts are with you and we, we hope that she'll get better yeah it, it's hard to know at times like this sometimes what to say yeah. sometimes you want to talk to people about it sometimes you don't what, what has she expressed as she's gone through the suffering? Is she, is she fearful? Has she, you know, um, what is she going through? Uh, I think she, she's just really struggling right now with, with what's going to happen if she does die. Mm. Um, what's going to happen to us, but also what's going to happen to her. And I think she's, she's really fearful of that um, because there's just so much unknown. Yeah. Is there anything that I can do... Um, in addition to, to praying for you and offering to help, any, anything I can do to, uh, to to take the burden off you? Yeah, well, I, I don't think you could fully take the burden off me, but, you know, is, is there anything, you know, as a Christian, is, what, where, like, is there any hope that Christianity has, you know, for for someone like me or for someone like her who's, who's going to die? Yeah. Well, the hope Christianity offers is this, that when Jesus died on the cross, and rose again. He conquered death in the sense that, you know, we're, we're all going to die. You're right. And uh, it's a terrible truth about life. What Jesus does when he dies on the cross and rises again, he, he makes a way for us not to, uh, not for death to be the end. And the issue is with our sin. Uh, the whole reason that there's death in this world is because at the very beginning, Adam and Eve sinned. Uh, but what Jesus did was he took the price for our sin on the cross. Because we, we've fallen. We, we've violated God's commands, and so we're guilty. 
Jesus paid the price for that. So by believing in him, repenting of our sin, believing in him, we're told in the Bible that we can know for sure uh, what's going to happen to us after we die. And, and that's really our only hope. And yet it's, it's all the hope that we really need. So you can see with, with him, far less antagonistic, uh, more questions about, um, you know, could it, could it possibly be true? And again, I still want to approach the, that conversation through questions. But because he wasn't raising a lot of objections, I was able to, to weave more of the, the gospel into it, give him more content, and then wait to see how he responded. So what questions did that conversation raise, or even just the lesson that we went through? Shelby? Do, do you ever find, or find that people would see you speaking to them in that context as taking advantage of their situation to preach to them? And how do you avoid that and, and still love them in that conversation intentionally? Yeah, very carefully. Um, again, in this conversation, because we have a relationship, uh, I would be more bold to talk about those things. With a stranger, I would probably uh, seek to show more compassion and, and probe a little bit more with questions to see if they were open to talking about it. Sometimes you'll, you'll, talk, you'll meet a grieving person and they'll say, I just wish I had answers. I wish someone could tell me something. Well, I think that's an open door. But if you try to force upon a stranger, you know, let me tell you about Jesus when they're, when they're really uh, weeping and broken and are not open to that, that can come across as strained. So this is why in, in sharing the gospel and trying to answer these objections, uh, internally I need to be praying, saying, Lord, what should I say next? Should I push a little bit further? Should I, is this person need compassion or do they need answers? Uh, tomorrow morning when we talk about evil and suffering, we'll talk about the fact that with Martha and Mary, when Lazarus dies, they both say the same exact words. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And with Mary, Jesus gives her a ministry of tears. He weeps with her. With Martha, he gives her the ministry of truth. He gives her a little theology lesson. You know, I am the resurrection and the life. So internally, you've got to be responding. What does this person need from me? Uh, and maybe at this time, the best thing I can do is just say, I'll pray for you. I'm so sorry for what you're going through. If, if you want to talk further, I'd be glad to do that. Uh, but it really depends on your relationship with them, how open they are. It's a good observation. We never want to take the advantage of a suffering person to, you know, you're going to die too, so you better know where you're going. Oh, it's just so insensitive. Someone else? Another observation or question? Yes. So I kind of noticed that you opened up with, um, you know, the question he was asking. It's almost like a thesis statement, and then you kind of looped around back to it after a while. Hmm. Do you find that that's a good technique, or was that kind of just unintentional? It was probably unintentional. What thesis do you think I said? <laughs> <laughs> well, kind of just um, not necessarily a thesis, I guess, more so the way that you could uh, talk about what happens after you die. Yeah. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't intentional. I was just kind of watching his facial expressions, thinking I don't want to push too hard with doctrinal truth. I mean, that's important about what happens when we die. Sometimes you can see a person, if they're starting to get uncomfortable, change the subject and you know, ask personal questions. And then if they're open to it, bring it back around. It really is paying a lot of, because really, when we do this, I have no idea what he's going to say. 
And every time he does this, he does it differently, which drives me crazy. But he should, so it's not scripted. Um, just really pay attention to their answers and their body language. Because you're, you're trying to show compassion and love for them while looking for ways to insert the truth and challenge unbelief. Other questions? Sometimes that hostility keeps a conversation going where you could say something like, uh, why, why do you react so negatively to Christians? Have you had a bad experience or what's your perception? It can actually open up a whole new line of, of thought. Um, I may not actually say I'm a Christian, but I might say something like the Bible says or because at some point you, you, you've got to expose yourself. I believe in Jesus. I believe the Bible has the truth. It may end the conversation. Um, but at some point, I've got to try. And, and truthfully, I found it to be rare where that really cuts the conversation off altogether. It may alter it. But um, especially if I, if I don't just say, well, I'm a Christian. No, but as a, as a Christian, I, this is what I believe happens. Have you ever heard about that before? Or I'll often say, does that make sense? You know, as a Christian, God says this, this life is, is not the end, that Jesus made sure that we have... Um, an opportunity to spend eternity in a place where there's no sin and suffering. Does that make sense, or have you ever heard that before? So as long as you combine that I'm a Christian with some distinctive belief which answers what they're looking for, I don't think it's a problem. It's a good question, though. And don't be, I mean, you may not use the term Christian because maybe the people around you, you know, have, see that negatively, but, well, I believe Jesus has the answers, or I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. At some point, we can't be afraid to talk about that. Yes, please do. Why don't you come up here and take Ryan's place? <laughs> yeah, I would say, um, well, the whole reason Jesus came was to provide a way for us to, to get to heaven. And uh, the, the wonderful thing about Jesus is he is the person that has bridged the gap for us. I'm not going to, I don't want to go there and talk about, well, if she, if she dies, is she going to go to hell? I want to hold out the opportunity that God has extended to her. Now, if they, if they like, try to corner me and say, if my wife doesn't believe in Jesus, will she go to hell? Yeah, anyone who rejects God's good gift of salvation uh, will not get to be with him for eternity. I don't want to deny that, but I want them to see that I'm not preaching a message of condemnation. Remember John 3, 17? Um, Jesus did not come to the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. I want to point to the fact that this truth means that there is a way and uh, there is opportunity to be saved. It's a good one. Because we don't want to deny the truth. People who reject Christ do go to hell. But if, if I can emphasize the opportunity for salvation, then people realize this is not I'm not just a banner-holding lunatic outside of a funeral saying, you know, God hates soldiers or, you know, whatever. 
think also too, one thing that I found is, is never try to predict people's responses because it will always surprise you. I, I met with someone recently um, uh, just, to, just to talk about some things in their life, and, and I hit them with a, a very hard truth that is not very popular, and they responded really well to it, hmm. not, not how I was expecting at all. Um, and there's been a few times where I've had to talk about you know hell or sin or something like that, and I was expecting people to respond a certain way, and it, it didn't. You know, some, sometimes there's a little bit of hostility there, but a lot of times people, you know, un- understood and were willing to listen. And so I've only had I only had one time someone get very very hostile with me, um, but even then, even when I was in that situation, God's God's spirit calmed me down. And I was able to listen and talk to him and just, you know, have have a you know conversation with him, even though he was very very animated. But most of the times when I've when I've said hard things, I can't predict re- people's responses. Sometimes they respond well. Sometimes it doesn't end the conversation. But you never know, and that's why I think it's important to keep in check as a Christian when you're going to the situation. Um, people have preconceived notions about Christians, and a lot of them have heard a lot about Christianity, but not a lot about the actual gospel. And if you're talking to them about the gospel, they're going to be really surprised because it's going to be different than a lot of what they've heard. Most of them are thinking you're going to tell them, okay, you need to be a better person or you need to go back to church or you need to – but when you tell them that Jesus loves them and if they put their faith in Christ, then they can be saved and that you know all, all the kinds of things that come with salvation, I think a lot of them will be very surprised by that because they've heard about it, but they never really understood it or they've heard different things about Christianity. So I think if you're preaching the gospel, people may be hostile, but – don't be surprised if someone is surprised. Ryan just went out the other night with uh, someone that he met after he, he spoke somewhere. And uh, the guy told him, you know, I'm, I'm gay and I've been out for a while, but I want to I want to get right with God. And um, a lot of the things Ryan said to him might seem very bold. But the guy was like, yeah, I'm so ready to hear this. I visited liberal churches, and all they wanted to talk about was my homosexuality, and there is no answers there. I need someone to help me hear the truth. It's like, <laughs> you don't expect that. But again, you can never prejudge. Uh, I think about a guy in my church when I was a pastor. We called him Big Pete. He was six foot five, 350 pounds. He was a former Hells Angels motorcycle gang member. Tattoos, he had a long ZZ Top beard that came to his waist. Gentleman, I said, Pete, who who was the first person to witness to you? Because I take my hat off to that person because you're a scary guy. (laughs) He said, man, my life was a wreck, you know, addictions and violence. He said some little Baptist preacher in a polyester suit came up to me and shared the gospel. He said, I broke down and wept and accepted Jesus right then and there. See, we, we too often, I find myself doing this prejudging, looking around like, okay, who do I think will respond well? Well, I don't know. There, there's someone with tattoos. Oh, they're probably scary. They don't want to hear the gospel. Or they'll be, they'll be mean. And, you know, there's a woman who looks, you know, impatient or something. So not her. And we, you know, there's a guy in a really nice suit. He's not going to listen. He's probably got all the money in the world. And we do that when instead we ought to just trust God and say, Lord, if you put this person in my path, don't let me be intimidated by their look because they might be on the verge or they might be ready to talk. And I think that's one of our biggest obstacles is our own fear. And I encounter that all the time. So you're, you're working with this guy every day. And the conversation started it. How's, how's life? How's your wife doing? Mm. You could ask that same question tomorrow. Yeah. Do you have 
have a plan to share the gospel every day with that? No. No, it's just, it's, again, the, working from the, the root of love for the person, praying. I think we ought to be praying for the unbelievers in our lives every day, saying, Lord, open it up. Wait, you know, waiting for opportunities. From time to time, initiating. I found this to be true. They're, the same girl cuts my hair every month. And um, she seems to be very open. She knows I'm a Christian. Um, I occasionally talk about it. But she's just kind of made it clear that she thinks she's okay and that she thinks she's a Christian, but has given no testimony of salvation. So I don't, I don't witness to her every time I go in there, but at least every other or every third time I bring up something about the gospel, hoping that she'll show interest. Sometimes I might ask her directly. I'm taking this as a long-term relationship because I have had the direct conversation and there's not been a lot of positive response. But then I, I know at some point something bad's going to happen in her life. And I've talked, shared with her my own story of, of you know, uh, certain suffering and things like that. So she knows that I, I'm willing to talk about that. So it's a long-term patience. Yeah, it's a great question. And that's why um, talking with people that you don't know, you know, cold turkey, just conversation somewhere, is so different than conversations with people that you know. Because it might be the only time you ever talk to that person, so you've got to kind of go for it or someone you have an ongoing conversation, relationship with, it's patience and consistency. Another, another. let me share one more testimony. Um, another guy that was in my church was named Don Tall. I always remembered his name because I thought, that should be my name, Don Tall. Uh, and he was an engineer, and he came to our church for a short time because where I pastored, a lot of people were there temporarily. And uh, I asked him to share his testimony one time in church, and... Uh, he said, I was an atheist, I was an engineer, I worked in a room full of engineers, we mocked God all the time, and uh, he said, we were all white, and the, the guy who serviced our vending machine was black, and he said every day he'd come in, uh, or every week, happy as can be, singing, trying to tell me about Jesus, and we would just mock him mercilessly, you know, make fun of him, try to make his life difficult, and this guy just was never affected, just happy, always trying to tell me about Jesus, he said, this went on for a year and a half, and all of a sudden something bad happened in my life. He said, the first person I thought of was that guy. And he said, the next time that guy came, and I said, I need to talk to you. So it's, it's learning to have that patience where I live out the life of a, of a joyful, patient, gentle, loving, long-suffering Christian, making my faith clear without being oppressive or pushy, so that when that thing comes into that person's life, which there will be, I'm on the list of people that they want to talk to. Another good example is the, uh, one of those hostile young women my wife worked for when she had a miscarriage last year. My wife hadn't talked to her for almost a year, but she called my wife. And, and we're, that relationship is still kind of um, not the warmest. Uh, we, we were friends with her and her husband, but uh, they're very devout agnostics, and they know we're Christians. They came to our house, and we have a C.S. Lewis quote stenciled on the wall. And uh, we sat underneath it, and they kind of turned their bodies away from that because they didn't want to have to look at it. That's how uncomfortable they are. But, we, you know, we patiently reach out to them and talk to them on occasion, knowing this could be a very long-term relationship, but we want them to know that when God brings things into their lives, you know, difficulty or whatever it might be, that we want them to think of us to talk to about it. Time for one more question, Keith. How does, how does it uh, make it different in 
what we say and how we say it. If we approach that person as a project or someone we're going to make a job. Mm. Uh, share anything like the story of Clark or anything oh, like that? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think one thing is not not going into every situation with that person saying, okay, I'm really, you know, I'm really going to, you know, really going to get them this time and, you know, type of thing, but just building a, a friendship and a relationship with them because I think those experiences that you don't necessarily share the gospel through, you know, you're not ta verbally talking about it. I think those experiences when you spend time with them, when you do something fun with them or something, those aid the times when you do talk. Um, and there was this one guy at school who me and him became friends over video games and we had a good time. I'd go to his house occasionally and we'd hang out and talk and it was it was a long it was a long time. It's like about a year and a half before we, we before, you know, he he professed faith, but um, a lot of it was just spending time with him, you know, and times when he was going through rough times. I mean he was he was in about eighth grade. Um, struggling with with drug addiction and, and other things in his life, and so we just we would spend time together and just talk video games, or we'd talk music, or we'd talk all these other things, and um, we would have opportunities to talk about the gospel, and there was just bits and pieces here and there. Didn't he jump from religion to religion yeah, at that he time? Would, yeah, he would jump from religion to religion. So we had some interesting conversations. I definitely uh, gained an understanding of different different religions and and things like that. And we had fan, we had you know we just had a good time because. Although he said he believed him, you know, part of it, I don't think he really did. We, we'd laugh about it and things like that. But um, just, I think, through through that respect and that time spent, one day he came up to me at school. And um, he said, and I, don't, I don't claim that anything miraculous happened, but he just said, I, you know, I was, he was a part of, he was into some new age religion that involved taking psychedelic drugs. And so he said, you know, I took this, I, you know, I was seeing demons and they haven't gone away. I can still see them. So I don't know what happened. But um, I said, okay, you know, he said, tell me about Jesus, tell me about the gospel. And the most clear opportunity I had to share with him, I, I shared with him and talked about it, and he, he just responded with a, whoa, that's deep, man, that's deep. <laughs> a, a few months later, a few months later, he came up to me and said, hey, I want you to know I became a Christian. Uh, some guy who, who I, I didn't know that this was happening, but there was another guy from a, a Young Life program that was discipling him and mentoring him, and he was able to lead him to the Lord, and and so we had some great conversations about that. But I think that relationship aspect is really what changes it from being a project to someone who's made in the image of God. Because you recognize that although this person is lost, they're not completely, you know, they're not, they have good insight. They have good things that, you know, like my dad said, recognizing that this person can perceive things about God because they are made in his image. He had a strong sense of that there is more to this world than just science. There's, there's more to this world. And just, you know, what we can see. He even gave some of the teachers in our school a run for their money with, with some of his beliefs and the things that he knew and stuff like that. So I think that relationship aspect changes it. And a relationship that says, you know, I, you know, I want to have fun and, and I want to hang out. And that, that guy that my dad mentioned, um, I, when we, me and him were talking, I said, you know, would you like to get together, you know, every, every Thursday and spend time together? And he said, yeah, you know, I'd like that. I said, I want you to know. So this is not a, a pity hangout. This is not me saying, you know, I want to spend time with you so that, you know, I said, this is something where I want to get to know you as a person. He said, I know, because he said, if he said, if I felt that way, I would have walked out a long time ago. And so we're, we're going to spend time together and we're going to hang out. But I think that's really what changes it is that relationship aspect, because the times that you spend 
not verbally talking about the gospel, I think you're still preaching it with your life and how you treat that person. And I think it changes the message. That's good. Any more questions? All right, let's close in prayer. Invite you back tonight. We're going to talk about the reliability of the Bible. How do we know that what we base everything on is even reliable? Lord, we're so thankful for the people you put into our lives that need the gospel. And I pray that you would give us the confidence, remind us that the Holy Spirit dwells within us and brings to mind the things that we've learned. You've given us the word of God, which has all the answers in it. You've given us uh, the power of prayer to pray for those that we um, that we know uh, don't know you. And I pray, Lord, you give us confidence in the gospel. It saved us, Lord, and help us to believe it can save others. I ask that even this week and the next few weeks, that every one of us would have opportunity to begin to put into practice these things and that our confidence would build and that we would become confident, vocal witnesses and to see the fruit of that in our lives, to see people come to Christ and see people get more interested in hearing the gospel and to be shaken in their unbelief. And may that excite us that you are still doing a work of, of saving people in this world. And we can have a part of that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.